Hi everybody, this is Nick, and I will let you know that I will be at FallCon Saturday, September 25th from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Pre-sale tickets are available. They're $12 and then $15 at the door. Children under nine get for free. Come see me and a lot of my other artistic friends and previous guests of the show show off their works. And I will be there too, selling my comic book, The Green Way, and promoting the show. Come see me, Fall Con, at the Minnesota State Fairgrounds, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Brian is here. He knows dedication time. So, Brian, what would you like to dedicate this episode to before we begin? I'll dedicate this episode to my wife and dog who, um, my, my wife is my copy editor on my, my website and my dog is kind of, you know, her bed's right next to my desk. She's my emotional support throughout the day. So, um, without them, I'd, I'd be lost. Does, does your wife enjoy movies as much as you do? Very much so. Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. We, uh, we yeah. differ on a few, you know, directors. Maybe she doesn't like David Cronenberg as much as I do, or maybe, you know, not, not as much into <laughs> Stanley Kubrick as I am, but, uh, uh, but pretty like, pretty much our tastes align, so it's great to be able to throw in you know pretty much anything and and have her just as interested. Cool, yeah, yeah it is. All right, um, let's uh, let's start the show. All right, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm back from the show, and uh, today with me is uh, Brian Eggert from um, Deep Focus Review. Brian is. Uh, we'll put the link up to, down below. He's a film critic. He's part of the Minnesota Film Critics Alliance, it's the same as us and Kyle. Um, and where can people find your reviews? Yeah, so um, I write for DeepFocusReview.com. Uh, some of my reviews are also on Row Eight, which is kind of a new streaming service. Row Eight. Okay. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool actually. They have a, a neat feature where if you if you start a movie you know it's like it's like itunes or anything like that where yeah. you know you're, you're renting movies but if you start a movie and and you don't like it after like a half hour you can you can cancel the rental and rent something else amazing which i've never seen any kind of you know service do which is kind of neat <laughs> we're so used to you have to rent it you're fully invested yep gonna yeah make- so that was kind of neat. Um, they don't have you know everything on there quite yet, but you know most new releases they have on there, which is which Parking. is nice. Row eight. Row eight. Row yeah. eight. Uh, yeah, very new company. Like I'd say they've been around for about a year. Um, okay. So yeah. And cool. then you're part of that too. They can find your reviews there. Well. Yeah. 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 Um, how long have you been doing uh, reviews, critic reviews for films? Uh, I've been writing reviews for about 14 years. It'll be about a little over 14 years. Uh, So I I got started in uh, right out of college doing it, and I would review, you know, everything. Uh, I'd I'd review just pretty much anything that came into the theater just to get reviews done. And it started out very recommendation-based, you know, kind of like Roger Ebert-style reviews, you know, where I wasn't digging too deep into it. and then it just, you know, it, it got, as the title suggests, it just got deeper and deeper into, yeah. into, uh, you know, you know, particular films. Um, and you know, the, the whole idea of a deep focus, as I'm sure your listeners know is, you know, everything's in focus. So I'm, I'm 
as I continued to write, I started to put, you know, really take that to heart and really focus on, um, you know, the past, present and, and, you know, potentially a future of a movie. Uh, look at how it was made, uh, you know, formally look at how it was, you know, produced and look at, you know, what this means, you know, possibly in our culture. Um, so with regular reviews, uh, I started to back down a little bit, and now I think I'm, you know, I maybe review one or two movies a week, but I go really in depth with them. Um, yeah. And then once or twice a month, I also write um, a longer essay, like a, a scholarly essay, where I'm doing research and you know writing five or six thousand words on a movie. Your essay topics can be like from a director to a style or anything like that? Or yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I do stuff where it's like, I'm just going to explore this one particular director or, you know, a, a where does this film uh, situate in history? Uh, why is this significant for the time it was released? You know, what was going on in the culture at that time? Um, the, the one I'm publishing, you know, that'll probably be up by the time this podcast posts is uh, uh, Zhang Yimou's... Um, uh, Raise the Red Lantern from 1991. It's a uh, Chinese film, um, just an amazing, beautiful movie. Um, but I really talk about kind of what's going on in the culture at the time it was released, how that relates to Chinese history and and the period that it takes place, which is the 1920s. Uh, you know, you talk about the aesthetics and you know the story and and right, just kind yeah. of how all that kind of congeals uh, into into what I feel is a masterpiece. Um, so I, I do that uh, in a series called The Definitives, which is, um, you know, I, I have no shame about admitting that, like, <laughs> Roger Ebert's, uh, you know, great movies, his that series that he wrote, or or TCM's The Essentials. I mean, it, it's it's that sort of thing. But I just go a little bit more, uh, a little bit more academic with it, uh, where I'm yeah. actually doing research and citing things and, and um, you know, digging into film theory or digging into film history a, a little bit more. Um, especially with Ray's The Red Lantern, because that is a, definitely a marker footnote for films coming out of China. Yeah, yeah. Um, I it's, mean, because if you remember uh, The Horse Whisperer, which Marty Corsese said it was the best film he's ever seen, and that took a long time just to get out of China. The and Horse Whisperer? I, I think it was a Horse Thief. The Horse Thief. Okay, uh, yeah, Horse Whisperer is like Robert Redford. Robert like, Redford, <laughs> Horse Thief, where the guy was a Horse Thief in the transmit. Oh, sure, yeah. And then throughout his trials of, he had to go back and he began at the end through all the, the everything that he became back became a horse thief again and got caught and uh, admittedly i haven't seen that um but i have been sort of immersed in this um this wave of of movies that came out sort of after um you know during this period called the opening of china where uh so-called fifth generation filmmakers started making movies yeah and um they could they were really allowed to critique the cultural revolution that was going on beforehand and do it in very allegorical ways and and so there's a lot of films about history and and uh you know just what had happened in the previous decades that are that are really fascinating that have sort of consumed my uh viewing in the last i would say six to eight months um and and I've I've really you know fallen in love. Some of them I had seen before and just and didn't really know much about beyond the you know the surface and yeah. just how they were just how they were made. But uh, really digging into the you know the history and the culture and and what that means for uh, the audiences at the time. And moreover, how those movies really aren't being made today. And um, even that director Zhang Yimou, uh, he had a film that was supposed to open at, at Venice a couple of years ago. And, uh, or maybe it was Berlin. I can't remember, but it was called one second. And 
you know, China pulled it from the last minute saying it wasn't quite ready. Um, the Chinese censors. We need to go through the right channels. Yeah, everybody. Right. Yeah. Right. And so they've they've announced that I think Mubi actually picked it up for distribution now in the U.S. And it's coming out this year, but it's like a minute shorter. So they, they found something that they didn't like in there and, and wanted it censored. So I think that, you know... Chinese censorship is very alive and well, and it's probably a little bit more oppressive than it was in you know ninety one when Raise the Red Lantern came out. Um, but it's interesting to see how you know in thirty years something can something can change so much. The you know freedom of expression can change so much. So anyway, that's that's a, that's a long winded way of saying that uh, I go into these you know <laughs> these write these essays and. Uh, um, I have probably got maybe 270 of them, I think, at this point. Um, so, yeah, then in addition to just what I'm writing, you know, on the site, I, I do a Patreon. Um, and people can, depending on the tier level that you join at, you can request a review from me. So um, a lot of people are just, you know, requesting, you know, somebody requested um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit or somebody requested uh, Ordinary People and movies that maybe I wouldn't write about. You know, just think, yeah. you know, they're right. not, my, not on my list to write about, but revisiting them and having to think about them critically and, and write about them, uh, I find a lot of value in. And, um, you know, I'd, for each one of those, I'll do a bunch of, you know, reading and make sure that I, you know, have a full view of, of what this movie's about and what people have said about it and, and how it was made. Um, so that's, that's, you know, I probably, right. ha- th- yeah. pro- probably have three or four posts a week on, patreon that i'm doing that's good yeah i like that because i think that's one of the benefits of having a patreon it forces you to a direction like i don't should we do that one and then yeah let's do that one and see what you think about it because a lot i think a lot of times even though oh, i love movies i really love movies i do have a tendency of a bias and we all oh, yeah we absolutely. all have a certain bias and yeah. there's certain things and if somebody points me in direction maybe you want to see this differently or wait a couple of years and watch it again yeah yeah i remember when i was in college i waited intentionally waited uh, over a year to see Titanic because sure. I knew I was already going to have a preconceived notion that probably I want to find something wrong with it. I was going to hate it. I wanted to have it not this constant. It was a big movie when it came yeah. out. It was everywhere. The music was everywhere. You got bombarded. And I was like, I just want to see it blindly and it let the waves calm literally yeah. just so I can watch and enjoy it without something like, oh, everybody likes it. I want to find something wrong with it. Everybody hates it. I want to find something to like about it. So that's why I kind of waited a while before I saw that. That was my, my, like Titanic. Yeah. It's hard not to get caught up in, in that sort of, um, you know, the zeitgeist of, of what people are loving at the moment. Like when La La Land, for instance, came out, everybody loved La La Land. Like it was just when it first came out, you know, before there was any backlash or anything. And I saw an early screening of it and I was definitely in that camp. Like I just loved it. And then I just, you know, a month later, I just kind of didn't care. And it was like, oh, I got, I allowed myself to get, you know, sort of sucked into the, the fervor around that movie. Um, and I'm completely susceptible to that at times. Uh, but we, we, we critiqued it for Kyle Nick on film. It was one of the things he wanted me to see because I never saw it. So oh, okay. he wanted, like my first time reaction to it. And that was another one I wanted to wait it because it was such a big pop to it. Yeah. Almost got best picture. Yeah, almost, yeah. <laughs> um, although I'm happy I'm happy Moonlight won. I think that was the better movie and probably the more significant movie. But, yeah. I mean, nobody really talks. I mean, well, you guys did an episode on it. But, yeah. but I mean, there's not a lot of like – La La Land is a culturally significant movie. There's not a lot of that talk, whereas, you know, Moonlight is I won't mention so. the person's name, but they're like, wait, La La, L.A. 
It's like LA. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah, it's right there. That same person was like, wait, WandaVision. His name is Vision Wanda, but it's what Wanda sees. Wanda, WandaVision. Hey, clever. Yeah. <laughs> These titles, I tell you. <laughs> um, but I had the same reaction with a lot of people that saw uh, Daniel Isn't Real, that psychological thriller. Okay. And I was kicking around film festivals and people just really had a lot of accolade. They were really like, you got to wait to see us. And the cover looks very psychedelic and it yeah. was a psychological thriller. And I was like, it's right up my alley. So, But I knew I had to wait. And I just didn't have the response a lot of people said. They really pumped it, really drive it. But to me, I was like, yeah, I enjoyed the movie. Yeah. I think it's good, yeah. And I think that's a, you know, this is a great point because uh, – as I kind of mentioned, I'm I'm sort of not writing a, a ton of new release stuff right now. I'm, I've cut back to maybe one or two a week, and usually, actually, I, I do a weekly poll uh, on the Patreon that I run, where the patrons actually pick what I write about. Uh, I don't even I don't even even if there's a like the Green Knight has been out for a couple well, you're of weeks. Using at Patreon this point. the right way, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, the Green Knight has been out for a couple of weeks, and normally in any other situation, if I didn't have Patreon. I would probably run out and see that, pan, you know, pan, pandemic notwithstanding. Um, I like David Lowry, and you know the I love uh, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, so there's no reason that I shouldn't go see that, yeah. see that movie. It has all the agreements for me to really enjoy it, right? Yeah. Except patrons and patrons didn't pick that, um, so I, you know, I I, I, I reviewed something else. Um, so that's it's kind of a fun way to to limit myself and challenge myself and sort of give people supporters control. Um, but it also allows me to say, okay, I'm only going to write one movie review this week, and they're going to pick it, and I'm, that's my assignment for this week. Um, and I've kind of gotten out of the, the the rat race of you know being first or ha- having the first review up, or even having a review up on opening weekend. I'd rather I'd rather take a week or so and think about a movie, and and then write the review um, and and look at what people are saying about it, and sort of factor that into my review and and talk about the cultural discussion a little bit. It's almost uh, somebody put it the analogy of film critics are film critics are almost like bass fishermen. They get to the spot, they fish, 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 fish. Doesn't work. Let's go to the next one. Fish, fish. Until yeah. They find someone, then they want to talk all about it. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's easy, very it's seductive to get caught up in the web to forget why you're doing it in the first place because you love movies and you want to find something that you got a feeling to it that yeah. you can express or something that didn't really work for you that you want to say you know well I like it but maybe you want to work with a little bit this or something like that yep absolutely yeah. and I, I need a few days after a movie especially like a big movie with that where an audience is you know completely in sync with the movie and everybody you know loves it i need a couple of days i think after that just to just to sort of calm down a little bit because it's yeah that whole you know communal viewership it, it's a real thing where it sort of just takes you over and you might like a movie you know one star more during the, during the screening than you did you know when you sit down and actually think about it and write about it yeah. um it's it's contagious that way i get a kick out because I, I do reviews with kyle and he's a much younger than i am um, you know, so a lot of the movies we critique I came out when I was a kid, sure. or some of them that he likes, and it's um, some of them he's never heard of before. And it's nice to get his perspective, even it's kind of a generational thing of something that I really like, and they're like, Well, it's all right. What do you mean it's all right? I love this movie when I was a kid, yeah, yeah, yeah. But for them, it's, it's I'm not going to criticize him for it, but it's just his experience for it. It is, this came a little bit later. Isn't you know, it's a generational thing sometimes too. Yeah. I, I see that a lot with old movies. Like I'm a, I'm a big, you know, classic Hollywood aficionado and just kind of film history aficionado. So I, I really, 
I see more old movies than I do new movies and kind of that's my bread and butter is old you know quote unquote older movies and um so whenever I show an older movie to you know I have I have a sister-in-law we we my wife and I showed her Psycho a few years back and she had never seen a black black and white movie and was just you know put off by it like this is so distracting this is black and white and it's like well, well why are they behaving that way why are they talking that way and why you know their acting style is weird and it's just you know it's it's hard to acclimate to kind of the waves of of filmmaking whether it's at the time it was absolutely scandalous to show Janet Lee in right. a bra in the beginning of the movie and to kind of visually tell them what they were doing on their lunch break right exactly in exactly so yeah. yeah, so it's things like that where it's you know looking at a movie and and understanding all the the extra textual stuff that's going on. You know, it's right. you can't just watch Psycho in a in a in a silo and, and get what's going on. You need to have that sort of you need to kind of know like what what was representation like before Psycho and what was it like after Psycho, and then you kind of really understand the movie. Um, and, and I think there's t- kind of two schools of thought about that. You can watch a movie for the text only and that's a completely va- you know whatever your reaction is is completely valid yeah. um or you can look at all this extra textual stuff in addition to the text and it kind of enriches it and um that's what i that's what i love doing that and that's what i love about movies is that there are all these extra textual elements going on especially you know you reference psycho because he uh Hitchcock used his TV production people right yeah to do the movie to make it cheap and to look almost like a TV show which he thought would enhance the scandalous of it because you're thinking like you're not watching a movie you're watching a television show yeah and here's a woman in her bra and you're like oh my god not to mention you're going to use a what was a big scandal at the time a working toilet right yeah right <laughs> not so much um, to go all of a sudden but also the censor is upset that you can't have a flushing toilet and then Alfred's like well a bathroom without a toilet is far more disturbing than <laughs> <laughs> yes that is disturbing what, what, are, they, what are they doing um th- but that's actually- the little increments that you now we're moved beyond that where you show a toilet i mean we show you know, eyes wide shut we saw nicole kidman actually using the bathroom right yeah we've gone to that element stage and that was in the 90s uh, you know the the psycho thing that you brought up about the tv crew actually uh just kind of made a connection to my head about um uh, completely unrelated and maybe this is a, just a random aside but um how frank darabont used like a, his tv crew from the unit um the the show that he was kind of doing off on the side after yeah that's espionage kind of yeah, I, yeah i've never i never watched it i know that like david mamet wrote some of the scripts which is that's always that aspect has always interests me yeah. and you know darabont's a great director so that interests me but um yeah he made you know the the black and white version anyway um I guess they're both the same version. One's just in black and white, but um, yeah, he used that TV crew, and it, it seems to have a bit more for of an edge. The Mist. The Mist. Yeah. Oh yeah, for Did, the movie, The Mist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, The Mist came out in I think 2007, and it was you know another King adaptation. He had done Shawshank uh, Redemption, and, but there are elements. It looks like an NBC tv show it yeah. it's kind of, it's a little grittier and it. it's a little you know lower budget looking than than right. the green mile or the other movies that he's done but um, it looked like it was tv for movie movie for tv sometimes where they just set the camera or something like that. but it, you go gory a little bit to, to make it to enhance the oh my yeah, God, yeah yeah so the great thing about that was that he ended up making that that he did a black and white version for for um like blu-ray and dvd and that version is like 
it's like watching Night of the Living Dead for the first time, you know, the original Night of the Living Dead in black and white. It just, it's got this edge to it that um, I wonder if, you know, that's a result of him using the, the TV crew. I think so. Yeah. I think so because so. It, especially when television, you have to set up fast. Yeah. You, you have to set up like within seconds. Yeah. And, uh, uh, we've had Johnny Stuckmeyer here, who's a cinematographer for film, but he also works uh, TV commercials. And I just, I each know on social media, he took a photo of me working because I just want to see how fast you have to work in commercial. And he set up the atmosphere to take a really professional photograph in about five seconds. Wow. And he goes, that's how much time you usually get because they're like, okay, we're ready. Like, you don't have time to plan. Sure. You don't have time to dialogue. And I think that's benefit if you want to make a quick movie. People who are experienced working on television and commercial because you don't have a lot of time to rehearse or anything and that's probably why you remember the soap operas yeah they only shot chest high because they're not gonna they set the camera pretty much permanent right so you're moving cameras you're not gonna right. up down up down moving leave the camera setting alone <laughs> yeah that's uh i i had you know just finished um joseph mcbride's biography of of spielberg um a while back and um they were talking, you know, just about his origins in television and how, you know, he had had to learn th- that way, you know, do, doing shooting television episodes or TV movies, yeah. you know, you just had to shoot faster. And so by the time he was making his own movies, he just shot super fast and, and you know, could pull things, pull very, you know, elaborate shots off in a very quick and efficient way that was, you know, Jaws notwithstanding yeah. under budget. Um so yeah, we're, we're we're old enough to know that if you keep everything under budget, right, and you make money, you'll be able to be continue to be a film director, right? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you can keep it under budget and you make money, they're not gonna they're not gonna have a problem. They'll probably leave you alone too. Yeah, although you know Scorsese seems to be defying that for the last like twenty years. I would say, <laughs> Aside, apart from you know The Departed and maybe The Aviator, I don't know that his his movies have made a ton of money. But he keeps making them. They keep, they keep giving them, you know, hundred and two hundred million dollars to make, make recent movies, which is great. I'll I'll keep watching them if he keeps yeah. making them. Is there a, um? So what do we look for um for defocus now? What's that's on the what's fresh for you? Um. Well, I did outside of raise a red light. <laughs> right. Yeah. That'll be that'll be up in a few days or by the time this this posts. Um. And that was a that was a kind of a four or five month process of you know researching and writing that one so that's big i i'm looking forward to getting that off my mind um but recent stuff uh pig with nicholas cage was maybe probably the most exciting thing i've seen in some time um just a i'm sure people have heard about it by now especially you know the film twitter audience but but uh just an incredible performance from nicholas cage he he just hasn't been that good in a while um you know he's kind of making culty stuff which is you know mandy and you know color out of space are great but um this was real you know high quality acting and uh a very good story and just not what i was expecting at all you kind of forget that that's where he came from yeah from from leaving las vegas in the 80s you know when peggy sue got married and yeah raising arizona he could do comedy everything and then he kind of did this i'll do anything just almost on a dare on himself (laughs) yeah yeah he's been very kind of erratic over the years and uh every once in a while he turns out something like like you said leaving las vegas or adaptation where it's just you know he's really blown it out of the water and and uh yeah i haven't i haven't felt like he was really putting himself into a movie um for a while and this is really something special um it is i think out there to rent right now it was in theaters for a couple of weeks but now it's on uh, on on uh available to rent for i don't know 
six ninety nine, I think. But yeah, yeah. great. Hey, would it be? Uh, I know you're limited on. You said you're not really focused on new releases. Would that be something on your top ten so right so far for twenty? Yeah, yeah, that's way up there. Okay. Um, there are a couple others that that are may, maybe higher. I haven't quite uh, made my list, my recent list uh, <laughs> yet. But um, there, uh, there is no evil. Is another one that uh, is. It's an Iranian film uh, by Mohammad Rasulov, um, who did. Um, boy, I think it's the, it's the Iron Boat. No. That's not the title. I'm not going to try to. I'm going to. I'm. 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 I'm wrecking this title. But uh, he's a very good director. Um, and it's a uh, anthology. So like a four part anthology, all about um how in Iran there's you know you're conscribed into military service, uh for I think eighteen months to two years minimum, and during that time, you may be forced to work in a prison, and you may be forced to execute someone. So there are people who you know just because of the way the country is, uh, may have to execute someone. And there are... Just by the process of where you got put, and this is where you go. And right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. You got you got lousy luck, and now you may have to, you know, hang a bunch of people or put a bunch of people in the chair. Um, and that has a lot of psychological, you know, effects on folks. So um, they... The way he deals with it is very... Um, shocking at times and just gut-wrenching emotional and very four different very different stories uh about people who have either had to do this or are around other people who have had to do this and just kind of the psychological and emotional implications and it's um it's devastating stuff but uh extremely well done Okay, and that's that's actually going to be officially submitted to Iran, or is that kind of, um, um I, you know I'm maybe it'll be you know I I think he, he um he got in trouble that director for um he made it sort of uh without the Iranian government knowing his okay. his previous movie. That's what I was going to ask. Is I you know. yeah um I I don't know I doubt it's going to be their official submission to like the Oscars, okay. but um. Yeah, he was uh, banned from making movies, I think, for like a two-year period and just sort of made this, you know, under the radar and then got it, uh, they snuck it out of the country, actually, and uh, it premiered at, a, I want to say, the Berlin Film Festival and, um, you know, to wild praise. And so that that aspect of it always hurts hurts the movies. Well, where can possibly. people find it? There is no, it was um, about there is... No, there is no evil. There is no evil. Uh, I saw it on Kino Marquee, which is, you know, Kino's sort of, um, it was their answer to the pandemic where, you know, th- they're not going to be having stuff in art house theaters, obviously, because theaters were shut down at the time. And so they started the streaming service where um, I think, you you know, you pay $11 or something like okay. that to watch it. But they've got a, a, lot, a great body of... Um, independent and and uh documentaries uh and and international f- movies that are that are on there that uh i would highly recommend going on there because there, there's always something interesting that they've gotten there you know f- they've, they've usually got i'd say five or six movies that are circulating at any time that you can rent um which okay. doesn't sound like a lot but usually they're all very interesting yeah do you have you do you critique documentaries for, for deep focus yeah yeah um you know not I'm not going to just review any documentary, I guess. Sometimes, like for instance, I recently watched the movie Val, the the Val Kilmer 
documentary. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, yeah. Wasn't his, his his family, his his daughters involved? In, um, I think his daughters were involved and his son was involved. It's actually kind of uncanny because uh, you watch maybe the first two or three minutes and uh, you hear what you think is Val Kilmer's voice narrating. And then uh, they reveal that it's his son narrating, and it just sounds so much like him. It was it was kind of it's kind of disturbing, and I kind of forgot that it was the son narrating this whole thing because it sounds so much like you know Val Kilmer, very young Val Kilmer narrating this entire documentary. Um, anyway, my point is that it's a fine it's a fine documentary. Uh, I. <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess I just didn't feel like I had anything to say about it, so I, I just kind of shrugged it off. And there, I'm, I'm not going to write a review on it. Um, I think the documentaries yeah. where I feel I'm really passionate about the topic or passionate about what the what the film is doing, you know, a good Werner Herzog movie is is always um, <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. You yeah. know, he, his documentaries are always doing something a little interesting that that's outside of the realm of of the norm. Um, I worry about documentaries sometimes because they've become very popular on like Netflix and streaming services. And there's a certain type of Netflix documentary where it's just, they're not doing anything formally new. Um, you know, it's a very typical structure. Maybe you've got some talking heads or maybe you've got some, you know, graphics and, and that's all there. And it's just presenting information, which is fine. And I'm, I, yeah. Watch those just like everybody else, uh, but it's not really doing anything new with the form. And so I like documentaries that um, kind of push the envelope of what a documentary is or should be. Uh, so Dan- well, it's hard, isn't it? Because uh, we've had documentary filmmakers on my show before, like Chris Newberry, who's yeah. been working on the Jacob Wetterling documentary film for the last 10 years. And like he says, we, we can't rehearse what we get. You know, he almost like, yeah. hey, that was great. Can you go back? And- yeah. Because you have to work with what you have. Yeah. And um, I think he's still working on it because he just doesn't have what you need to make it a great documentary to present what he wants. So, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to find the, like a little thing to just to flip everybody to watch a documentary film. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always a little suspicious. Uh, you know, I, I w- w- took, you know, several courses on, on uh, documentaries in, in, in grad school. I studied uh, – film studies in grad school and ever since then i've sort of like i used to love documentaries and just eat them up and just like they're uh, almost were the binging the youtube of uh, you know people like us yeah. in the 90s were like oh well, i want to watch a bunch of these yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. um but i think after i don't know just learning how they're made more and learning that it's not so different than a narrative, you know, just a drama film where someone's crafting the story and making yeah. choices about what to omit and what to show. Um, I, I get a little like I, my antenna always go up a little bit, and when I'm watching a documentary, like what what am I missing from this story? And, I, and so I had I, that same feeling when I saw King of Kong, but the arcade. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the, the somebody was so archaic, villainous portrayed in the movie, and I was like. I'm not really sold that this. I mean, you're talking about arcades and this rivalry of people, yeah, yeah. but you have this somebody that's so overtly diabolical. I just are you doing that disintent? Are you crafting it just for me to feel that way for the movie? Absolutely. Of course, there were some shockwaves after the fact of what was reality. Right. Of that. Yeah. Billy Mitchell, right? He was actually worse, kind of, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> than what the documentary showed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I saw that. Uh, I think at Uptown and Steve Wiebe, that that guy was was 
there. Uh, and he seemed like, you know, kind of a genuinely nice guy. But the, the culture, what I learned about it is there's always a culture of something in arcades. I mean, I used to remember playing arcades, but there's some people who just continually are doing it, even in the, what was it, came out in 2008. Yeah. Who actually go where the last arcade is in Ohio, and they all moved there. And then found jobs because they want to be close to the arcade. Sure. <laughs> they centered their whole life around it, which is far more fascinating tale than I would care about people wanting up each other about the arcades. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 you could tell that that movie was like an engineered movie. And I think... Uh, when I can feel a movie is engineered, that's when I start to like you know get a little skeptical about it. And I feel that a lot with with documentaries today, especially you know the average thing that shows up on on Netflix. It's it's very uh, it feels a little manufactured. Um, not that this is a documentary, but uh, that Bo Burnham's Inside, this comedy special that recently came out. I don't know if you've watched it. Um, I've heard about this, but you no, know, I haven't seen it yet. So he he shot it in his guest house, and you know it's a very raw and kind of uh, personal look at what it's like for somebody who's creative and who's used to having an audience uh, having to be creative during the pandemic. So he's just alone in a room and he's creating, you know music and he's he's failing at times he's dropping microphones he's testing lights and stuff but everything you're seeing is something that he chose to put the, in that right you know so it's just looking yeah. at critically at what you're being shown and why and how that's all an artistic choice by the editors or the filmmakers and and uh well andy warhol used to do that we just film a sky for four hours and see how long you're going to take it yeah and just go back home and <laughs> right and it's the, yeah it's those t- t- sorts of things where you know you're 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 being manipulated into a certain response and and yeah that I was think, andy warhol is famous for doing that yeah yeah just to see what how long you're gonna deal with it and then you know yeah so i think it's just a matter of you know uh, a lot of people my my problem i think with not that i don't like documentaries i seem to be coming hard, hard down on documentaries and i shouldn't be but but uh no but people think, accept them as face value i think right that's the whole thing it's, yeah. it's hard to um understand that that's editing that's yeah, correct editing. right uh, the last one was the apollo i thought the the documentary about the apollo yeah which apollo was 11 no, yeah. no narration it was a slipped up slips of what how it was like to be there at the time yeah there was no political there was no commentary there's no audio i don't think anybody talked about the whole thing they just showed you all the actions and the workings of getting yep. that thing up in space yeah there were no talking heads or anything like that or yeah no. it was it was uh yeah that was a fantastic documentary <laughs> that was, uh, just to visually see it like wow the, on a tractor being pulled to the space and everything it was just marvelous just to see that because yeah i get all the you get all the dates all oh, this happened this happened who's on the but just to shut up and watch it happen yeah yeah i think you know some of them can become in you know info dumps where you're reading a lot of text or whatever and, yeah. and that's fine and sometimes it's necessary because there's a story that you weren't aware of that you need to be informed about and in order to do that um maybe the most elegant way of doing that is just throwing a lot of text but sometimes it becomes a reading project you know right, right. where you're just reading pause <laughs> right uh, and you're literally reading like white text in a blank screen and, and this is not you know that interesting of cinema um and but there are there are times where that happens where the story that's being told is so powerful that it doesn't even matter that you know all you're doing is not all you're doing but you know you're reading 10 minutes of text in a 90 minute movie um 
it's just you know, there's a lot of pros and cons with documentaries for, for yeah. kind of the average run of the mill documentary. I enjoy them too, but you have to understand that it's an edited process, and they're telling you what to see. Yeah, throughout the whole thing, I was you know, especially if it's an event that you know of, right, right. But you get somebody else like you know Frederick Wiseman who's making these three-hour documentaries. Um, you know, City Hall I think came out last year where it's just you know these fly-in-the-wall documentaries where you're just really seeing the process and how it works and of course you know he's shooting thousands of hours and having to reduce it to three hours so he's making those choices too but he's doing it without um hopefully without a lot of uh interference and right. really really catching you know like but I, I said, think you have to like i have like an interest to the subject matter too yeah because i really did like you know the, like the ken burns i mean obviously it could take forever but him whole whole digestive of baseball and how much he had to and i enjoyed it not too much what it was presented but how much you had to leave out <laughs> yeah right. because there's so many things you had to leave out and like from the 80s we only went for 30 minutes of what happened in the 80s like my god yeah. so much happened <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think uh shutters uh in search was in search of darkness their documentary on 80s horror yeah it was only three hours long. Oh man, you cut a lot of stuff, and now and now I know they're in the process of making the third oh, really? version of it. I uh, did like uh, Scream Queen, the the Shutter documentary. I, I don't know if Shutter produced it, but it, I saw it on Shutter um, about the the star of um, Nightmare on Elm Street two, who you know supposedly didn't realize he was making uh you know it was a, 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 a gay coded yes. yeah 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 queer coded movie and and of course now it's you know a, a cult film for that very reason but uh, and then just kind of all about his life you know after the fact um that was a very interesting well made documentary that i didn't feel like was too um too manipulative it was telling kind of a frank personal story i think 80s horrors will be far more investigated than we really think even now because we were bombarded. It was a massive haul. And I think you have a good slice of how, you know, what was really emphasis and what people cared about in the 80s, what their fears. Yeah. You know, the, a lot of the transitions, because a lot of them were misogynistic of just slash a horse with women. But there's yeah. also a lot of subtext of women being a hero, women be defeating the monsters. And yeah. how can we all gore each other? How can we all make up and all practical effects of each other? I actually, um, I'm you know, sort of gearing up for writing about uh, horror for Halloween, and I'm rereading. Uh, I don't know if you ever, ever read Men, Women, and Chainsaws. It's kind of the the first text that coined the term "final girl." Uh, I think it came out in the '80s, and it's it's really digging into films like um, "I Spit on Your Grave" and and um, you know the Halloween series and Exorcist, and and really dealing with kind of how gender gender roles in horror movies, especially in the '80s and the '70s, where you know let's say slim from texas chainsaw massacre 2 you know she's a she's a female hero and a strong female hero but she's doing it in masculine terms by like taking a phallic chainsaw and you oh know, yeah yeah you know yeah. so it's like it's or they it, take the knife to the driller killer from slumber party massacre we all know that right <laughs> yeah. so so women yes while they're being you know while they're being empowered in these movies which is awesome they're doing it in like in masculine visual terminology like they're taking a phallic symbol and like turning it against men as opposed to a more like feminine aggression so it's it's pretty interesting um something i read you know back in i think i read it as an undergraduate in college what was the title uh, again uh, men women and chainsaws okay 
Um, I'm actually, I'm, I shouldn't say I'm reading it. I'm listening to the audio book. Um, it's just the that, worst weapon to use is the chainsaw. You can't really. Yeah, it seems, uh, yeah, yeah, right. I've, maybe an electric chainsaw, I guess, yeah, you I know, it just starts right away. But what are they do, dealing with the choke and the oil right. gas mixture? I don't know. It just seems improbable. <laughs> um, yeah, it seems very impractical. I, but, I re- you know, I, I didn't mean to I'm, I'm interrupt you, but I read an essay a long time ago when I was in college about the horror movie. The American horror movies is all about the expansion of America and then to use American tools of the West, like chainsaws, oh, interesting. axes, of everything. And how those, those you can tell is an American because those are American weapons of yeah. colonialization and moving out West because chopping down trees. What did you use to chop trees down? Chains, chainsaws, and axes. Well, what's our horror movies all about? Chains, sure. axes, and chainsaws. Machetes, yeah. yeah. Um, that makes me think of, uh, I'm always thinking of exceptions to rules, of course. So so that just that point makes me think of uh, Brian De Palma's body double and his gigantic drill. Like, what, how does that represent <laughs> American expansion? Like, yeah. nobody, I don't think anybody was using giant drills, um, but... <laughs> Yeah, that's a, oh, that's to, an interesting to theory. You, um, to share with you, because I was at when I was in a film school in the late '90s, and we had to watch Brian De Palma film. God, I can't remember which one it was. Maybe maybe it was Body Double. I don't know what we had, but something like that. But somebody and I told him, oh, I've already seen this. I'm a huge Brian De Palma fan. And then somebody turned to me and goes, Well, then you know Dario Argento, and I was like, Who is that? Yeah. Like, if you like De Palma, you're gonna love Dario Argento. He pretty much steals from him. And that's I when I think in the late '90s, I think I went to the video store and just. Pull them off the rack. I pulled Opera, yeah, <laughs> Tenebrae, and Phenomena, and watched them all one evening. And I was like, "Oh my God, yes, they're almost the same." It's almost like an Italian Brian De Palma. It's interesting, yeah. The, especially, um, I think the what was the first one he made? The uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage. That one I could, I definitely De Palma's? see. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, um, Ar- Argento. Argento. Um, yes. So I was going to say, wasn't sister? There was something with Robert De Niro. Yeah, he made a, he made a couple of movies with Robert De Niro. I think High Mom and um, yeah, that comedy High Mom, and then Sisters came out, and then he yeah, I think Sisters was maybe his fourth movie. Um, he made, yeah, he made a couple of very experimental movies to to, to start with, and yeah. they're they're okay, they're fine, yeah. they're they're fine as as you know er, examples of how De Palma started, and they're interesting cases but i i don't watch them for pleasure but then the <laughs> sisters and everything let's see where how'd you got started yeah yeah okay going back to argento oh yeah so um i've actually been re-watching like a bunch of argento stuff and i think de palma's superior to me for for one reason and that's his plotting is better structured i think his stories um I care about his characters, and I think things happen for a reason in De Palma movies. Whereas Argento, while I get the stylistic influence, so it's like definitely, it's it's a little hard to they're hard to follow, or things happen for you know maybe no reason whatsoever, which is really effective at times. Uh, but I think I just enjoy them like cognitively more. Uh, Brian De Palma's films because he takes so much time to consider characters and motivations and things like that. Um, and his movies can be a, you know, a tightly knit structure like, like blowout for instance is, is such a well-structured film and like so intelligent and all the character motivations, you know, everything makes sense. Um, but one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah. Yeah. It's my, it's my personal favorite. Um, cause not only do you need the sound to be 
you, you wanted to talk about a movie that about sound mixing and sound editing. The movie itself better have immaculate sound editing. Absolutely. Sound. But also it has to. You can't really cheap out on the cinematography, and he has a great cinematographer with him. Yeah, was, yeah. Zigma was cinematographer for him for that one too. The um, yeah, I, I I love it. It's it's one of those movies that's about filmmaking in a way, and it shows you how how. You know, it's about this political campaign and the backdrop of this political campaign and it's showing how media is it's showing you through the plot of the movie how you know sound and 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 audio or uh, and uh, visuals can be manipulated to to change their meaning and you know he yeah. what was it godard said that you know tr- film is truth that you know 24 frames a second and De Palma's like no it's lies at 24 frames a second um right yeah and he's showing you how how it is how it's lying to you or how it can be manipulated to lie and uh, that's so fascinating that's such a it works on so many levels for me well uh, Samuel Fuller is one of my favorite directors and from American he actually was more popular away than yeah. he ever was in America he made movies for MGM yeah um, but he always said I had to lie like hell when I did war movies you wouldn't believe if I showed you what it was actually like to be in war you see pieces of asses and pieces of skulls and all this stuff he's yeah. like oh you're really just going out all he goes no way I had to lie to you and said that's just a full intact body laying there yeah because if I showed you what it really like in life you would not believe me yeah <laughs> and that's because that's why I had to lie to my films when I make war movies movies his his um biography or autobiography uh is fascinating sam's Uh, yeah it's it's he's such a hard case and the stuff that he saw like you know he's like 16 and he's a crime reporter in new york copy editor yeah yeah and i mean imagine what he's seeing at at that age they weren't really they were like yellow journalism tabloid yeah so you know he knew how they 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 manipulated things. Yeah, I just remember like I, I just remember him calling everything a yarn. Like he just punch up a yarn, and and uh, that's such a you know that's such a great word for what he's doing. He's just he's creating these yarns, and and ho- hopefully you're entertained. And you know, toward the end of his career, I think like uh, the big red one. That's that was just, yeah. You know, that's the one that sort of gets to the the reality of how grim war was. Oh yeah. Um, that he, he intentionally cast Luke Skywalker to be in that movie. Oh Because yeah. he saw kids watching star wars yeah and then he intentionally showed luke skywalker seeing real evil and where you know we can just to the death star yeah here he sees and he's broken in half that yeah yeah that's a that's a great movie very very uh i think underseen and and underrated too i think that's what he stopped after that because i think he thought it was going to get a lot of more accolades than it really did. Yeah. But I highly recommend, I think Lee Marvin's in the movie, if I remember. Uh, yeah, yeah, Lee Marvin, yeah. yeah he's in it. And uh, Robert Carradine from Revenge of the Nerds is also in there. Um, <laughs> believe it or not, he's, uh-huh. yeah, he does a good job. Um, yeah, I love that movie. There's a director's cut that's out there. It's not on Blu-ray, and it's hard to find, uh, like, a remastered version of it, but it's, I want to say, like, a half hour longer. Um, and it's a superior version, too. Yeah. Um the, you know Warner Brothers, I think, cut it down. I recommend watching. I think IFC sponsored that documentary where he, I think, Tarantino and Tim Robbins interviewed Sam Fuller. I think that's oh, the really? one you've seen. I have seen that. IFC did a documentary where Tarantino and Tim Robbins went to interview him, and it's classic Sam Fuller where he just doesn't shut up. Yeah, <laughs> and he just reveals secrets and secrets. And I think that gives you the enticement to watch his movies because I think if you just jump into his movies, you're like, I don't understand. Sure. What you know the the influence he had on even Tarantino writing. Yeah. But if you watch this, the documentary of what he made, 
I think it's far more enticing to get you invested to what you're getting into. Yeah, I, I, uh, he, he's a favorite of mine too. I've, I've, um, written at length about uh, Pickup on South Street and White Dog and uh, my favorite. Uh, yeah, Pickup on South Street is just amazing. Uh, it's so hard edged and just so. Um, yeah, Richard Vidmark is such a <laughs> such a jerk, and it's it's great how how much of a jerk he is. He just doesn't care about anything. Um, just making money. I don't care. I'll, yeah, I'll work with anybody. Communist, yeah. patriot. I don't care. Yeah, I'll work. yeah. And it was a really you know, f you in the face of uh, you know American exceptionalism. You know, it was just what it's like to be somebody who's you know, on the ground, just kind of fighting to survive. Uh, I, I love that about it. But it has a, not only Richard Mark, Ridmark, and I think um, Gene Peters, really good chemistry together. Yeah. But Thelma Ritter's death in it is oh, one yeah. of the most deflating, the most sad things you've ever seen ever on film. It is so just, and I think it's even halfway through the movie, too. Yeah. And you're like, how do you, I'm not going to recover after seeing <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, she's pick great. Up on, yeah, pick up on South Street, I think. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a little break and back more with Brian. Greetings, nerds. This is Cena Nerd. I'm your host, Sarah Belmont. I'm the producer, Will Pope. And we talk... What do we talk about, Will? We talk about things, right? We talk about a lot of things. Arrowverse, Marvel, DC, any... You talk about DC, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> we, we rant about TV. We rave about movies. And we, we do some reviewing, um, but we're not overly critical, but we're also pretty honest and blunt when writers and showrunners and producers get in their own way. Exactly. So give us a listen. Yeah. Good night. Geek out. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, back more with Brian. Um, so what's on your list that is something that you want the audience to know about that you're really kind of excited about or we haven't talked about yet? Or Yeah, um, so I think there were a lot of films that were overlooked last year. Um, last year was kind of a hard year. I wouldn't be surprised, right. Yeah. Um, you know, our the way movies are consumed right now is super fragmented. You know, you're either a Netflix person or an HBO person and, or, a, you know, an Amazon person or whatever. And whatever comes out on that platform, you're just kind of consuming it. And, yeah. and yep. peripherally you might hear that something came out on Netflix or whatever. Anyway, there's a, there's a large opportunity to miss stuff. And I think there was a lot of stuff that was missed. Um, so I'd say, you know, of the people that I've talked to about movies, uh, I think First Cow is a movie that that uh, was missed. Uh, Kelly Reichardt's latest film. Um, so Kelly Reichardt, she made uh, Old Joy and Meek's Cutoff and Wendy and Lucy. Very, um, very independent filmmaker, like a true spirit of independence where she's yeah. really recreating how films are uh, being shot and... Um, in some some ways distributed uh so this was an a24 movie that is you know a24 has a certain look usually to their movies they're you know very kind of experimental at times um and this is kind of a very sedate look at um 
pre, I, I think it takes place in 1820s, kind of before uh, in, in Oregon. So people who are just coming off the Oregon Trail and they're, they're you know, in the yeah, Pacific Northwest. Yeah. yeah, they're they're in the Pacific Northwest woods and um, they're just trying to get started. And it's kind of, the story takes place around, uh, well, the first cow that's that's in this area. And it's this very interesting look at capitalism and um, nature as it might have been without human humans around, uh, which is very germane, you know, in the, these these recent days. Yes. Um, and it's just a beautiful movie that uh, has a lot going on to it. To cow. it, and it's called just cow. First cow. First cow. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, some people I think you know, film Twitter folks are probably going to totally you know i've heard about that and but i think you know the average person who maybe doesn't see everything would would benefit from that okay um another movie that is actually opening on august 13th which is uh, just a couple of days away from when we're recording this is called ama uh which is a pablo lorraine uh film uh so pablo lorraine he did um jackie the with uh, natalie portman um, yes. a couple of years ago and uh, he's a Chilean filmmaker and um, it's a very interesting uh, film about a odd relationship between a separated couple um, who have adopted a child um, it takes place in kind of the dance uh, what's called reggaeton uh, which is sort of this um, almost like reggae style dance except a little bit more um, I don't know uh, expressionist uh, it's hard to describe i had never really heard of it <laughs> well we're two white guys went on the <laughs> right uh um so in any case the dancing is, a, is amazing the the kind of the set pieces around the dancing are amazing it's a very hard movie to describe uh because i've never really seen anything like it what's it called again? um it's called ema uh so e e m a not to be confused with emma uh which also came out last year um i did like um i uh, I, I get why people like it. I, I'm just more of a uh, traditionalist when it comes to Jane Austen. But anyway, uh, so Ama, <laughs> um, uh, it's a strange movie. I mean, the the main character shows up with a flamethrower and just like blows up cars at times. She's dancing. She's got a really weird relationship with her husband. So it's a lot of great acting, a lot of weird. Um, Sounds like a little bit of sampling Grindhouse almost. Grindhouse sounds um, It's not. See, it's it's not, and I'm I'm trying to. A little more polished articulate yeah, yeah it's, it's it's a very kind of an art house movie i guess but it's a little bit more fun than that yeah, um, what the hell i'm gonna watch it anyway so. yeah um ema i'm watching i'm writing it down yeah okay um and then maybe one more is uh the nest sean durkin's film so he made um boy i'm gonna mess up this title marcy may martha marlene and I'm not sure if those are in the right order, but uh, he made that film <laughs> with, uh, Scott with Durkins, right? Scott Durkin. Durkin, yeah. okay. Right? Yeah, Durkin. Um, so The Nest, is uh, it's got Carrie Coon and Jude Law in it, and they're a uh, couple who live in America. He's originally from England, and he wants, he's obsessed with, uh, you know, kind of the image of success. It takes place in the 80s, so that, you know, tracks. Um they move back to England into kind of this estate and um, it's shot almost like a horror movie at times uh, where this estate is this big sort of crumbling, you know, artifice. Right. And, and it's really just a metaphor for how like, you know, if you're putting all your eggs in one basket uh, and you're 
trying to think of yourself as success or project success is just going to crumble. And that's kind of what happens. Their marriage kind of, kind of falls apart and, you know, their kids have to deal that with things. That sounds fascinating because it, it, it does, you set up almost like it's a horror movie you're waiting for, but the dread is coming. Yeah. Without really, it's almost like an anticipation. Yeah. There's a, there's this very unnerving quality beneath it. And um, while I personally resist the horror movie interpretation, like I, I, I get why a lot of other critics have, have said that it's very shadowy and whatnot. And um, it's more of a, of a, just a deep human drama where acting and, and um, the, the, di- the amazing dialogue and the, just intricate characters uh, really come to the fore. And I think um, I was really upset actually at the Oscars that, that Carrie Coon and Jude Law were nominated because they're, they're giving very layered uh, three dimensional performances where these people are capable of things that um, you may not think them capable of in the first, you know, 20 minutes. And uh, it doesn't go to, you know, to, extreme measures or anything it's not like you know somebody ends up dying or something like that at every point where you think something where it's going to make that leap it doesn't and it goes in a different way so you're really dealing with um you know the human dimension with these characters and i think that's that's what's so fascinating to me about it reminds me a lot of um ice storm yes very much where there's there's a lot of horrific you don't it's all below the surface yeah and even though there's a resolve it looks like things got even worse yeah um and even in that film, like somebody, you know, somebody has to die for them to learn their lessons, right? Um, yeah. Elijah Wood's character, he he gets electrocuted at the end. No, nothing like that happens in this movie, but it all just kind of comes to a point that's um, that doesn't go to this artificially dramatic extent that that another film would. Okay. Um, and, and I really love that about it. Yeah, it's hard to sell that kind of atmosphere. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. it's almost like, well, why those kind of movies? Because it's like there's no really no sales pitch to it. There's no real gimmick. But you're like, really is interesting to see. Yeah. And if you really love films, it's like like the Nest. And I haven't seen the Nest yet. Yeah, um, it's great. But if you, it's the trickery of how you can make something horrific without really showing very much horrific. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it, it's a movie that's very much about restraint, uh, not only in the way that it's made, but um, just in, in the plot structure. This could have easily gone, you know, somebody could have died or something, and everybody would have learned a valuable lesson in the end. Um, for all the recommendations, I've noticed that people are really shorting up their titles for movies. <laughs> right, yeah, Pig and co- yeah, First Cow, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and The Nest and everything, Emma, and yeah. No Man Land. People are kind of shorting up their titles. And we're so used to the 90s, sometimes it would be a full sentence of... Uh... Yeah, although another favorite movie of mine from last year was I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which is a very long title. Oh, wow, who was uh, the actress was in her? What's the, uh, um, Buckley, what, oh, I forgot her yeah, first her name. 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 Um, Amanda Buckley? No, I think, but Buckley's right. Jesse Buckley. Jesse, Jesse Buckley. Buckley is her Fantastic. name. Yeah, she was great. Fantastic um, in that. And she was in the movie The Beast. Yeah, yeah. She, that was a phenomenal movie. I put that on my list when, top 10 list when it came out because it's just, remember she was, her family was all, looked very together, had everything together and she's dating this rebellious boyfriend. Uh, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm not recalling The Beast. Okay. I think it's interesting because it's hmm. it's a place on well, who's the evil of it. Is her boyfriend really evil, or she is, or is hmm. his influences influencing her? But the toxicity, hmm. so it plays on it. But the, the ending clarifies for you. It's worth checking out. Yeah, I think it's called Beast. Maybe not the Beast, but she's in it. She's the one that put my radar. Wow, that's sure fantastic. Yeah. 
But yeah, yeah I think I'm ending. I mean, she did it very those very reserved moves, very sly moves. Yeah, that's a very uh, kind of thorny movie. And again, another movie that's at times it feels like a horror movie or like you're in a nightmare. There are some very disturbing images where a dog is just, you know, kind of shaking off, I think, snow and it just keeps shaking. Um, and that's kind of just the movie. Very, very unsettling. Yeah. It's kind and, of like the movie, isn't it? Yeah. No matter and, how much you try to fight off, you're just. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's kind of my, you know, as I as I mentioned, everything sort of fragmented lately. I mean, a movie like I'm thinking of ending things, twenty years ago, it would have been nominated for an Oscar uh, or two, or you know, best picture or something like that. And now everybody forgets about it because it's dropped on Netflix, and the conversation about it goes away in a week, and uh, nobody remembers it because it's not the top ten, you know, it yeah. view, viewed things on Netflix, and so there's no reason to have a conversation about it. So I think these things kind of have to be dug up sometimes and revived and remembered and sort of cherished and celebrated because Netflix certainly is going to do it for us. Well, it's Robert e- Roger Ebert said he was always fighting his people don't like to see good movies. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. really believed it. And he really had because I would tell people because I would recommend this movie. And he goes, oh, that doesn't seem like something we would watch. It's a phenomenal movie. It's <laughs> right. really good. I'm going to put it on my list. Eh, we'll go to see Armageddon. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, that's that's certainly fine. And I think the majority of people, actually, that I talk to about movies, which is, this is a little sad, but, you know, they, they think of movies as comfort food. And, and they, want, they want to, you know, consume, you know, quote, unquote, content because they they want to feel good at the end of it. Um, and I think there's just, you know, certain viewers that, that don't need to feel that way. And they, they want to watch something where they're going to be challenged or they're going to, they want to be emotionally devastated and a movie that scares them or a movie that, you know, makes them cry or makes them feel uncomfortable is a good movie because it was able to do that. Whereas, you know, just a large group of the general public, I would say is looking for, um, you know, like I said, comfort food, where it's just... A, an automatic. A, I want just the reflex, and it's yeah. enjoyed, and have a good ending. And Yep, a passive experience. You want to know what you're going to get, and you, you're going to be happy with that, and it's not going to push any boundaries, and, you know, maybe you'll laugh, or maybe you'll shed a happy tear, and and that's fine. That's perfectly fine. That's a acceptable way to watch movies, um, but I think, you know... You and I the, want to go a little bit deeper. Right, right. Yeah, everybody's got their own experience, and I guess, you know, I think... I've become increasingly, you know, I, I hinted at, or I mentioned previously that, you know, I, I've reviewed fewer and fewer movies over the years, and part of the movies that I'm leaving out are the ones that don't give me, you know, feel like a chore because I know I'm not going to have a strong opinion about it. It's like those middle, those two and a half star, three star things where it's like, yeah, this is good, but right. it's not great, and it does what it's supposed to, and okay. Um, it's those kind of movies that I just can't bring myself to review like i'm a huge i'm a huge mcu fan i'm a i'm a yeah, defender the of the yeah, mcu yeah. Oh, yeah. um they're all fine i just don't want to review them anymore because i i'm a pass passive viewer i get into the kind of the nerdy stuff what's going to happen next and i can't wait to find out how it's all going to come together and are they going to do fantastic four and who's going to be the new wolverine <laughs> and all that stuff I, I you know i'm interested in that um i just don't like I watch Black Widow and I just I, do I have an opinion about this that's any different than I any... love superheroes I've been around it I right mean, just I'm not running to the theater to see Suicide Squad or Black Widow right and even yeah, yeah he, Suicide Squad is another well okay great he made a Guardians of the Galaxy and yeah. Slither had a baby and it's called the Suicide Squad um, 
Which is great. I think we're probably running the course of what happened with the Westerns. Sure, yeah. Probably the late 60s all of a sudden. I mean, uh, you probably need Sam Peckinpah to shoot it all up again to remind everybody what was. (laughs) I mean, we, we, in a way, we've kind of already gone through that. You know, I think, you know, Christopher Nolan kind of, we were at at a place where, you know, they were making X-Men movies and, and... Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies were very good, but, you know, they were making They're Punisher cool. and, yeah. you know, the Fantastic Four movies. They were all just kind of bland. And then Christopher Nolan comes in and makes the Dark Knight trilogy, which is this, you know, amazing trilogy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which I absolutely love and think is, you know, great art and entertainment combined the way that Nolan does it. Um, and then we've gone back to trying to approximate what Nolan did. Zack Snyder's, you know, trying to trying to copy that and trying to add his own spin onto that that gravity, and it's just not doing it for me. Um, and I just don't think superhero movies are are, are reaching in that same way that he, that he was. Well, I, I'm surrounded, like we said in the studio, we're surrounded by superheroes and stuff, and I think we're just kind of running out of the gas a little bit. Yeah, take a little break. Yeah, I think everybody can break. Maybe some other. I mean. Superheroes are always in movies. Yeah. People doing exaggerated things in movies. Yeah. Um, so that's not really going to go away. But, the, you know, the costuming and all that stuff. I mean, I think we've all, the joke has already been played out, even with Suicide Squad and everything. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, occasionally something great comes along. Logan, I thought, was a great exception. You know, they. What happened with the slashers? I mean, Nightmare on Street 5. That was it. It came out in 89. <laughs> yeah. And then we're going to, everything has been a retrospective after that. Yeah, and then occasionally you get something like Scream where they're... It's a retrospective. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it yeah. is. And they kind of... Yeah, it's... it's. They're always looking back now. And I, I yeah. feel like few movies look forward. You know, you get a few filmmakers like Ari Aster or something who's, who's you know, making Midsommar and it feels like something completely new. Um, it, it's not. You know, they were making full horror movies back in the 70s, and he's doing a version of that, but he's doing it in a new way. Right, and I, I like what Ari Aster is doing. He's not mixing theme and tone. We can have a very bright-looking tone of a movie, yeah. like very floral, and oh, look how pretty the world is. Yeah. And then the theme is actually just devastating. Yeah, wow. and I, I think it's okay to use, you know, it's okay that every movie has an antecedent because every every movie does these days. Every movie has something that it's borrowing from somewhere else, and that it's okay to borrow. Yeah. Um, it's it's those little deviations, like Ari Aster, like, like you said, you know, shooting a, hor- a horror movie in perpetual daylight that's an interesting deviation or the way he deals with with emotion and just yeah. in-depth characters that's an interesting deviation to the to the folk horror you know blueprint that came before it and it's those deviations where it's like now the genre is growing and now the genre is mutating in cool ways um but if you find you know Possessor is another movie that came out, and um, I think I think you've watched that recently, right? Oh yeah, I just recently watched it. Recommended from Jay Curtis Ness. Yeah, recommended for me and Kyle. So very very fascinating movie. But is it doing anything that different than what Cronenberg, the Father Cronenberg, was doing? You know, in the eighties with Videodrome. Not really. I mean, it's corporate espionage and body horror. I, I, I critique that as well as I turned to my wife. I go, there is, you know, D- David Cronenberg at least had some kind of a bit that was kind of like ridiculous. And he knew it was ridiculous that yeah. you almost laugh at. And I go, I'm kind of missing that with this movie. That there's something where you're like, <laughs> you could just like, oh my God. Or yeah. Something like that. And it had very much a gloom to it. Yeah. That I think, yeah, insert a little bit of a comedy to it. It's constantly this gloom and this home this humming yeah that just 
almost put you to sleep almost. I do love the look of it. I do yeah. love the content of it. You had great avenues you can explore with gender identity and all this yeah. stuff that just kind of. I feel like could have done more with that though. Right, I, I feel I like yeah. if you gave you know told David Cronenberg to make that movie, he would have you know really explored what like sexuality like what's it like to be you know for this for this woman to be in a you know I, I think he yeah. he would have just explored that a lot more and there's a little more sense of like I saw like a lot of rear window you know when he's watch she's watching the people live yeah. their lives there's yeah. a lot of Obviously, there's a lot of dis- disconnecting of people. There's, nobody's really having an intimate relationship with each yeah. other, even though people are boyfriend and girlfriend in the movie. And, and I think, like in Videodrome, even, it's a very, you know, disturbing film, but it's also got a sense of humor. Right. You um, put a, the thing in the stomach, and it's like, yeah. yeah. Lat- I mean, yeah, there's certain elements where, you know, I think a great horror movie and a memorable horror movie has some things like, you got to be kidding me. Right. Yeah. 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 And I I didn't feel a whole lot watching Possessor, even though I thought it was an, a pretty object and a very well- I think it well, marvelous. Yeah. It was a well-constructed and even well-acted object. I like uh, Christopher Abbott and Andrea Riseboro. Um, and it, it was a great short film for the first five minutes. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and a fascinating idea, too. Uh, I just, I don't think it, you know, pushed the genre forward in any way. Yeah. And not that every, you know- not that every movie has to push the genre forward. I just think it's more interesting when they do. Um, I, for instance, I watched, uh, rewatched actually. I've watched it twice since it came out. Freaky with uh, Vince Vaughn. Oh, it's from twenty. It just came out. Yeah, it came out last year. Um, it was one it's of those kind of same thing. Possession kind of thing. Yeah, it's like a Vice bo- versa body all. swap movie. Yeah. yeah, but it's with a serial killer and a and a teenage girl, which is like okay, that's you know nothing about this is new except that you're just mashing up genres, um, and it's not really no. You see, know, Martin Lily Tomlin did it with all you know all, <laughs> right yeah, with that movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, the it's right there in the title, Freaky Friday. Um, Freaky. And. Um, but it's funny, right? It's funny, and it does it doesn't do anything special, you know, aside from just mashing it up in sort of a fun way. And it can be a completely standard, you know, by the book. You can predict where this is going to go, movie. Um, but it's just the treatment of it that's fun. Yeah. And I think those mo- movies are fine too. It's just uh, right, I, we t- we'll go back to my analogy: is it memorable or unforgettable? And Possessor misses out on two of those. There's nothing really memorable that I could take yeah. away with it, and it's pretty unforgettable. Like if somebody's like, "Oh yeah, I've," they'll take me a minute. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Sure. Yeah. But there's nothing really I can gravitate. All I can, if I go back and think about it, it's just a lot of black and yellow and a little bit of moodiness. Moodiness. And, yeah. And I mean, all that stuff, all of that, all those qualities we described could be in a different movie, and they'll they'll work. Uh, and for whatever reason, there just what well, there was something missing from that movie that where I just you know I watched it six months ago and I it's yeah. aside from a few images that are memorable, I just don't <laughs> don't think about it anymore. You know, that's right. That's that's why I think it has to be unforgettable or memorable. Yeah, and really great ones do both. Yeah, really great absolutely. ones do both, and the ones you cited before seem to be both unforgettable, and memorable, like uh, the nest and pig and first yeah. cow absolutely that, yeah, th- yeah those are movies that even though some of them came out last year i still think about them and and pig i think you know i saw that a couple maybe three weeks ago and i kind of can't stop talking about it because it's just so it's so fascinating <laughs> well brian thanks for coming and talking movies with me man yeah of course this was fun yeah we have to come back and maybe we can maybe at the end of the year we'll give all our top tens and all that yeah. stuff that'll be great yeah. yeah that'd be awesome yeah 
Uh, so, Brian, thanks again. Um, how can people find your things before we go? Uh, yeah, so it's deepfocusreview.com. I'm on Twitter at deepfocusreview, uh, Patreon slash deepfocusreview, I believe. And uh, yeah, check it out. All right, Brian knows it's not over to the guests say it's over. It's over. It's <laughs> over.